I'm so excited about this message. I, the, the passage we're going to look at tonight is just one of my very favorite passages in the whole Bible. And when I look at it, I just, I feel so inadequate because to truly get across the fullness of what this part of the Bible is saying is just impossible. It's just impossible, but it's just truly one of the most remarkable seven verses you will ever see in all of scripture. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or on the handout uh, to first Romans 8. We're not going to spend much time in Romans 8, but I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 17 through 25. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Okay, now I want you to turn to John 17, which is also on the handout, and I'm going to read verses 20 through 26. My prayer is not for them alone. This is Jesus praying. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Let me just pray really quickly for us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Would you illuminate this amazing text of Scripture? And would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so from 2014 to 2016, I was not in this country. I was living in England, and I was there for two reasons. I was there to knock on the doors of two future career pathways uh, that I was looking into at the time. Um, one was to work for a particular Christian organization that I really admired. Um, this was a ministry that did evangelism around the world. Um, they took the gospel into incredible places, you know, hard-to-reach countries. Um, they spoke to business leaders, heads of state, you know, on different college campuses. And I'd heard that they had a training program in the UK. And I'd also had some conversations with some of their staff uh, and they had given me reasonable assurances that if I went to the UK and I did this training program, that there would likely be opportunities for me to get my foot in the door and to go on to work with them. And so I moved to the UK in order to do this year-long program. That was the first reason. The second reason I went to the UK was actually to attend graduate school. Um, so when I was in college, I'd had a number of professors who had really encouraged me to consider uh, a career in academia. And I discovered that in order to do that, um, you know, I obviously had to go on for further study. 
I also discovered that uh, I could pursue a two-year master's degree while I was at the same time enrolled in the training program. So I decided to pursue graduate school at the same time that I was doing the program, and that's, that's what I did. Now, both of these things were things that really interested me. I was really excited and expectant, thinking that, that God was going to launch me into what at the time I thought was like my dream career. That's what I thought was going to happen. But what actually happened was that both of those doors closed in my face. The first year, I, I made it through the training program, and I met with the instructors, and I, I asked for opportunities to go on with their organization. Like, do you have an internship, or do you have some kind of residency that I can do? And I got no response. It was, it was bizarre. It was like no one was home. And it left me feeling lost. It left me feeling confused. The door was closed. Well, then I thought, okay, you know, if it wasn't that option, it must, you know, maybe it's the second option. And so, uh, you know, that was the option of kind of pursuing a career in academia, like becoming a professor or something. So in my second year, my focus shifted to that. Uh, and, you know, in order to, to be a professor, you have to get your doctor. You have to get a PhD, and the first step of that is getting a master's degree. And let me tell you, <laughs> completing that master's degree was hard. It was probably the most difficult thing that I'd ever done <laughs> at that point in my life. And there were many times where I thought I was just going to completely flunk, completely, you know, fail the whole thing. But, but, by the grace of God, I managed to complete the degree, which meant that I now had the option to continue on for the PhD, to, you know, become a professor, to pursue what I thought was my dream career. Well, as I was considering that step of going on for further study, it, it just became abundantly clear to me that at least at that time, pursuing a PhD was utterly the wrong thing to do. I, I had just this very strong sense that God was leading me to come back to the United States and to pursue ministry. And so I did. But that meant that both of those doors uh, that I was just so, you know, the, I saw them as just these bright, you know, shining portals into just a radiant, glowing future. Both of those doors were closed. And all of a sudden, my future became uncertain. And not just uncertain, but dark. You know, it felt like it was now dreamless. It was now hopeless. And I remember that there was a, there was a particular night, it was near the very end of my two years in England, when all of this, you know, the realization that, you know, both of the doors had closed and that now my future had been shattered and I had utterly no idea what on earth I was going to do next. Um, I'm sure no one in this room can relate to, to those sorts of things. Uh, it all began to dawn on me. And I just broke down. You guys, I don't usually cry very often in front of people. I cry all the time by myself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And at the time, I was living in a, in, a, in a rented room in a little house with a little back garden. And that night, uh, it was a night that no one else was home. And I just, I found myself outside in the back garden, just on my knees and just weeping and crying out to God, just out of my pain and confusion. Because my future felt so, so dark to me. And all I could do in that moment was just remind myself of the promises of God that he's not done with me yet and that he's working all things together for good and his glory. And you know, if we had more time, I could tell you the rest of the story. I could tell you how it was very, very good that God closed those doors. Uh, you know, I, I didn't realize at the time just all of the ways that he was actually using that time and all that heartbreak to prepare me for a future that was just beyond better than the future that I had planned for myself. So, you know, the story has a happy ending. But I want to ask you, what do you believe about your future? What do you believe about your future? You know, maybe you're kind of in the same boat that I was, of just when you look out on your future, it just seems dark. <laughs> like it's just a perpetual cycle of hardship or like, you know, like, like a sloping line that runs down into the left rather than goes up into the right. Um, I felt that many times in my life and maybe some of you have as well. So do you believe that about your future or could it be that you actually believe that the best is yet to come? That the best is yet to come. And that's, that's what we want to talk about. Um, so so we're, we're in the middle of looking at the whole Bible. 
And, and the, the series we're in has kind of almost had a little series within a series the last couple of weeks where in order to get into the, the New Testament letters, which is the part of the Bible that we're on, um, we've, been, we've been kind of pulling out some key themes that show uh, what Jesus means. The Gospels tell you what Jesus did, what Jesus said. But what does it mean? You know, what does it mean that he died on the cross? What does it mean that he rose again? And so we've been looking at, at that question, looking at it particularly through the, the lens of, of how what Jesus did gives us a whole new identity, a whole new way of looking at our lives. And tonight is actually kind of a hinge because we're, we're looking at that last, kind of that last theme. But then next week, we're actually going to dig into the very last parts of the Bible that talk about things to come. So what are the things that the Bible says are going to happen that actually haven't happened yet? And, and so we're going to look at that next week. This week is kind of a bit of a hinge. And the reason why is that tonight, uh, the theme that we're looking at is a theme that uh, in, in the Bible has to do with the future. And it's called, uh, the theme is called glorification. Glorification. So in the Bible, um, salvation or, or you know, the idea of being saved. Sometimes it's used in a past tense sense, sometimes in a present sense, and sometimes in a future sense. So, um, you know, the past tense, you know, you might see places in Scripture that say, we have been saved. Other places in Scripture that say, we are being saved. Or there's also a future tense sense sometimes, we will be saved. And there's a term that goes with each one of these. Um, just anyone, anyone remember from the last couple of weeks just what any of them are? These are kind of theological terms. Justification, Justification okay, yeah. So that's, uh, that's, that's the past tense sense of salvation. Uh, and then anyone remember the other two? Oh, they're right up there. Oh, what a softball. Man, you know, Luke, you, could, you know, Luke is probably like, uh, you guys are probably paying him big bucks tonight. <laughs> So the three terms, justification, sanctification, glorification, that's the one we're talking about tonight. Now, just, just really quick, what I, want you, <laughs> what I want you guys to do, just take 30 seconds, turn to some people around you, and, and I want you to see if you can define those first two. What does justification mean, and what does sanctification mean? Just take 30 seconds, turn to some people around you, and just see if you can, can define what those two things are. <clears throat> Okay, I'm going to have to bring us back together. I know that was not enough time. <clears throat> now, now I, really, I, I really want all of us to know these, um, not because it just pumps your head full of more information, but because if you, if you really get the significance of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about all these different dimensions of salvation, it will change your life. I can guarantee you that. So, so, let me put, well... Can I guarantee you that? I don't know. That's maybe Jesus can. Jesus Thank you, Will. So, yeah. Weighing my words carefully tonight. Okay, who uh, just who 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 has a definition of justification? What does that mean? What does that mean? Cameron? Well, I'm sure we've all done that. There's, you know, that's kind of maybe a dimension of it. Um, I'm going to see if someone else wants maybe to add on to that. Uh, I saw Daniel, your hand was up first, I think. Yeah, so the idea of being declared righteous, being set free from the penalty of sin. And that's something that's happened in the past. So uh, there's a verse for that. So look at this. This is Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when he, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So past tense. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So this is something that has already happened. It's settled. It's done. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. Okay, now what about sanctification? Who has a definition of sanctification? Emma, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, or if, I guess if you wanted to use another biblical term, you could say like being made holy, maybe. Um, right. So, so you might think about this as present tense salvation. And there's a verse for this, too. So look at this. This is 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So now we are set free from the power of sin. You don't have to sin anymore. 
It's not like, you know, someone's holding a gun to your head and saying, you have to sin, you have to sin, you have no choice in the matter. You've been given a new nature in Christ, and so you no longer have to submit to sin. And that means that as you go through this life, we can grow to look more and more like Jesus. So those are the first two. Very, very, very good. Very good. You know, the, the whole thing about, like, Michael should, you know, My- Michael wanted to become a professor. You know, I, can, I feel like I can embody that a little bit tonight. You know, well done, class. Very, very good. Straight A's. <laughs> okay, now, now tonight we come to the last one, glorification. So what is glorification? Let me give you a definition. Glorification refers to the aspect of our salvation that takes place after our death when we are brought into the very presence of Jesus and are set free from the presence of sin as we enjoy the unspeakable wonders of heaven for all eternity. Now, there's a verse for this, too. Uh, this is Romans 5.9. By the way, I think I, I, I might be setting the record tonight for the most scripture references in a Thrive Talk. Let, let, I, I don't know if anyone's tallied this up, but I, there, there's a lot. There's a verse for this. So this is Romans 5.9. It says, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more future tense shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So you see, there are verses that kind of demonstrate those three senses of salvation, right? Now, glorification. Um, we, we kind of gave a definition. What does that mean? Now, there's a lot of different dimensions to glorification. For example, so in the passage that we looked at uh, first in Romans 8, Paul is talking about glorification. You get that in verse 17 on the handout where he speaks of believers sharing in Christ's glory. But now, what, you know, what does that entail? Well, a little further down you find out it entails a resurrected body. So look at verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Amazing. It means that death is not the end. You know, all of us are going to die and our bodies are going to decay unless you're alive on the earth when Jesus comes. That's another sermon. And, so, you know, gosh, some of us here, even, might already kind of be feeling the shadow of that decay of our mortal bodies, maybe because of health issues that you struggle with or, or, or things like that. The promise of glorification is that one day we're going to receive a new body that's been fashioned by God, that's coursing with life, that's totally free of pain or disease. And so that means that if you're a Christian, death is actually a gateway to being more alive than you've ever been before. Amazing. So a resurrection body, that's, that's one, one, one aspect uh, of glorification, but it doesn't just entail a resurrection body. It also entails something else. Uh, so in the same passage, Paul explains that it entails a resurrected world. So uh, look at verses 19 through 21. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Amazing. So, I mean, for those of you who raised your hand earlier, who are doing the Thrive Bible reading plan, uh, do you remember the reading from yesterday? Uh, Genesis 1 through 3. Do you, do you remember what happens when Adam falls? God doesn't actually put a curse on either Adam or Eve, if you read the text closely. He puts a curse on the ground. Uh, Genesis 3.17 is where it says this. Now, part of the curse, therefore, was that the ground would produce thorns and thistles. Now, mankind is going to have to toil to eat his food. In other words, when humanity fell, creation fell with us. But the pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that one day it's all going to be reversed. And that humanity will one day rise. And when that happens, creation will rise with us. So just think about this. Like, think about the most beautiful sunset, the most, you know, incredible hike that you've ever done, the most deep blue ocean you've ever seen. Do you realize that all of that is the world groaning under the weight of sin? Now, we live in the state of Washington, which is objectively the most beautiful state in the entire world. Someone was getting Pentecostal about Washington tonight, talking back and affirming that. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's a, anyway, it's a beautiful state. But, but even the most beautiful things that, that you would see in Washington or anywhere on the earth 
That's the world groaning under the weight of sin. Can, can, can you imagine how beautiful God's creation will be when it's renewed, when it's resurrected, when everything that's wrong is finally set right? That's what Paul says is entailed in glorification. So this is pretty amazing, even with what we've got so far. You've got a resurrected body. You've got a resurrected world. But it gets better. It gets better. Because the most important feature of of what we're talking about tonight, it's not a resurrected body. And it's not even a resurrected world. The most important feature of glorification is the consummation of God's relationship with his people. You know, we enjoy relationship with God now, but in the future, God's relationship with his people will be so profoundly enlarged and enriched that Paul says in Romans 8, I consider our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glories that will be revealed. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight by going to what I believe is one of the most profound passages in the whole Bible. It's John 17. And so we're actually, we're kind of cheating tonight. We're not really sticking with just the New Testament letters, but just deal with it. Um, So John 17, John 17, um, and just beginning with the context of what this chapter is, this is a chapter that happens immediately before Jesus goes to the cross. So in the very next chapter, chapter 18, Jesus is going to go to Gethsemane. He's going to be arrested. And then in less than 24 hours, he'll be dead. So so John 17, it immediately precedes the cross. And therefore, it's, it's one of the fullest revelations in all of scripture about why Jesus went to the cross. You know, like, what was, he, what was he going for? What was he doing? What did he intend by that? So keep that in mind as we read this passage. And, and I want to break it down by just looking at uh, these three things. The three things from John 17. Number one, the triune God. Number two, the triune love. And then third and finally, the triune invitation. The triune God, the triune love, the triune invitation. Um, so first... Uh, one of the reasons that this chapter um, is what it is and is as significant as it is, it's because it's the longest prayer that Jesus ever addressed to his father. Uh, longest one. And, and so what that means is that this chapter gives you a glimpse inside the Trinity, inside the very heart of who God is. And so therefore this chapter reveals to us in, in an incredible way who God is more than almost any other place. So, so what does this chapter reveal about who God is? Well, one thing it reveals is that the God of the Bible is profoundly different from the gods of any other religion. In pagan mythology, uh, you know, there are many gods. Uh, many of the gods are, um, are, you know, they live up on Mount Olympus or, or you know, somewhere else. And, and the gods in, in pagan mythology are, are characterized, I would say, primarily by power, so gods like Thor, or gods like Zeus, or gods like Poseidon, each, each has a, a superhuman power over a different part of, of the creation. That's, that's the belief. So Thor is the god of thunder. All you Marvel fans already know that. Uh, Poseidon is the god of the seas. Um, I think, is that what, is Aquaman kind of a rip-up of that? That's DC. We don't talk about that here. Or, you know, so, so that's, okay, that's, that's, you know, kind of pagan understandings of God. Or take Islam, just as another religious example. So Islam... Um, is, is a little bit different. Islam believes there's only one God, and he's characterized by lordship. So Allah is, a, is the master, humans are his slaves, and in the same way that employees in a company would never actually have a personal relationship with the CEO, you can never truly know Allah in Islam. You can never have a relationship with him. There, you know, there's 99 names in Islam for God, but one name that's conspicuously absent from that list is the name Father. Because you can never know God in a relational way. So in pagan mythology, power characterizes God. In Islam, lordship is what characterizes God. But, but down through the ages, Christians have had a radically different understanding of who God is. Um, Christians have said that God is trinity. He is three persons sharing one substance. Uh, So, for example, uh, let me read you a statement that's taken from the Athanasian Creed. Now, the Athanasian Creed is a statement of belief that was developed by the early Christian church sometime around the 5th or 6th century uh, after Christ. And it says this, We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. 
So there, there's a classic statement of the doctrine of the Trinity. It says that there's one God, not three gods, but that this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, of course, creeds are not scripture. So you might be wondering, you know, how did the early church conclude this? You know, how, how did they arrive at this idea of the Trinity? You know, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. So how do we know that this just isn't made up or invented? And the answer to that question is that they arrived at it the same way that we can arrive at it, which is simply by reading what's in the Bible. Let me just give you a couple examples. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a statement that says that the Father is God. Pretty simple. Uh, here's another verse. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Now here's a place where the scriptures are ascribing Godhood to Jesus. Let me give you one more. When Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears to his disciples, you might remember there's one disciple who's not there, it's Thomas. And Thomas kind of gets his own revelation of Jesus where he is so doubtful that he has to put his fingers in the nail marks. He has to put his hand in Jesus' side. And when he does so, and he realizes that Jesus has really risen, what does he say? The famous line is, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus takes it. He accepts that appellation of himself. It's another place where the scriptures are showing Jesus to be God. So the Father is God. The Son is God. And so is the Spirit. Uh, I won't read this whole one for you, but if you go to Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, um, this is the place where Ananias and Sapphira lie about holding back some of the proceeds from the land that they've sold, that they claim that they're donating in full to the early Christians. And, and Peter accuses Ananias of, he says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. But then in the very next verse, he says, you've not lied to men, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is being equated to God in that passage. Or here's another passage, another example. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Lord is a term that's applied to God, applied to Jesus throughout the New Testament. And here, it's saying that that applies to the Spirit. the Spirit. This is another verse that shows the Spirit's divinity. So you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. Scripture is testifying to all of them being God. And you actually see this brought together in the famous Great Commission passage that Jesus gives to his disciples. Where he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the Father, Son, and Spirit are all brought together in one because the testimony of the scriptures is that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all God. So that's how the early Christians, you know, just to name a few examples, I'm sure there's many more, but that's one example of how the early Christians arrived at the conclusion that God is Trinity and unity. So there, there's the doctrine. You know, there's how you get there. There's what it is. But what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean that God is Trinity? John 17 is the answer. John 17, uh, more than any other passage, unfolds what it means for God to be Trinity. Um, but in order to kind of really even get there, to, to grasp what, what that, that chapter is really saying, you, you have to backtrack a little bit through John's gospel. Um, and I'm going to do that now just as we, as we work our way up to this chapter. Because what I want to do is I want to just pull together a number of different threads that converge in the, the climactic chapter 17 in order to show you what does it mean, what does it really mean that God is Trinity. So let's go to the very first verse. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here in this verse, you have two persons being named here. One of them is called the Word. The other is God. You can look at the verse and see both of them there. 
Now, on the one hand, it's, it's clear that these two persons are distinct because John 1, 1 says the word was with God. But on the other hand, it's equally clear that the word isn't just with God. It says the word is God. And if you read a little further, if you come to verse 14, we discover that the word is none other than Jesus because it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's referring to Jesus. And in fact, verse 17 confirms this for you because verse 17 mentions Jesus by name. So if you were to paraphrase John 1.1, 1, 1, we could say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. That's what John 1.1 1, 1 is saying. And in fact, you know, you can kind of see this confirmed in verse 3 because there it says that all things were made through the word, through Jesus. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. So this isn't merely a human Jesus. This is a cosmic Jesus. This is a divine Jesus that we're talking about in John 1 verse 1. Now, again, if you are doing the Bible reading plan, this verse might sound extraordinarily familiar to you. Especially, uh, yeah, especially if you, if you read the, the thing from yesterday. Because this verse, John 1 1, it's actually an illusion. It's an intentional echo of Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They both kind of have the beginning in there. Now, just this verse, Genesis 1-1, in English it says, in the beginning. But the Hebrew text of this verse, I don't, I don't usually like to do this just because I don't like to nerd out on these sorts of things, but this is, this is actually something worth saying tonight, that if you look at this verse in Hebrew, the Hebrew text actually doesn't say in the beginning, it actually says in a beginning. Or at least that's how the, uh, the Hebrew scribes understood it. That's how they pointed the vowels there. In a beginning. Now, because that sounds weird, most of our English translations don't translate it that way. They say in, uh, in the beginning. Now, why is it in a beginning instead of in the beginning? What's, what's with that? Well, because according to John 1.1, Genesis 1.1 wasn't the ultimate beginning. Before the beginning of creation, there was a relationship. And it was the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Look at the very last verse of the prologue of the Gospel of John. This is verse 18. And it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So now notice in this verse, there's the mention of the Father, and then it mentions the only begotten God. That's the Son. And I, I've read this verse here in, in the NASB translation. Some translations say other things, like the only God who is at the Father's side. Uh, but, but literally, what the Greek says is that the Son is in or toward the bosom of the Father. That word is literally the same word that's used to describe the disciple whom Jesus loved when he reclines against Jesus' bosom, against his breast at the Last Supper. So what does this mean? John is saying that by, by, by this verse, by, by this whole prologue, that the kind of relationship between the Father and the Son, it, it is a relationship. Like, they're not just related to each other conceptually. Um, they're not just related to each other in some kind of business contract. They're connected relationally, and it's a relationship of infinite closeness. And not just closeness, but of love. In fact, um, you know, just sort of capturing the idea of like Jesus in the bosom of the Father, this is how the, the New Living Translation uh, translates this verse. It says, The unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. It captures that this is a relationship of love. And what this means is that at the foundation of the universe is a relationship of love. So that's just, that's just the prologue. L let me move a little bit further through John's gospel. I'm going to flesh this out just a little bit more. So, so the, the, the thing that, that particularly I want to grab onto as we look at the, the next bit of John's gospel is that this relationship is said to be a relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, now what does that mean? Um, look at John 5. 
You can flip there or there's, you know, I'll just put the verse up on the screen. John chapter 5, uh, this is verse 19. Um, Jesus is in a conversation with the Pharisees, and here's what he says. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. So this is one of multiple places where the son says that his entire life in ministry is completely dependent on the initiation of the father. So here he says he doesn't do anything apart from the father. In John 7, 17, he says he doesn't teach apart from the father. In John 14, 10, he says he doesn't speak apart from the father. And so if you were to put some of these things together that Jesus is saying about the relationship between the father and the son, the picture that you would get is that the father is the one who initiates, the father's the one who generates, the father's the one who gives. Uh, in Jeremiah, if you go back to the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 2.13, God actually compares himself there to a fountain. And it's the idea of God being one who always is gushing forth life, just like a fountain, of like a spring. Everything the son has comes from the father. Uh, let me just read you a little quote um, from, from how one author puts this. Uh, what does it mean that God is a father? A father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity he has been life-giving. This gets unpacked for us in 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. To be the Father, then, means to love, to give out life, to beget the Son. Before anything else, for all eternity, this God was loving, giving life to, and delighting in the Son. So everything the Father has, he gives to the Son. All his authority, all his power, his wisdom, his wealth, honor, praise. The Father gives that to the Son, gives that to Jesus. But now what about the Son? What does the Son do? You know, does the Son just receive it all? Does he just hoard it to himself? You know, is the Father a fountain and the Son's like a drain, just kind of selfishly sucking all things into himself? No. No, the son gives all that the father gives him back to the father. John 5.20, the father loves the son. John 14.31, Jesus says, I love the father. John 17.10, Jesus says, all you have is mine and all I have is yours. Or then there's glory. You know, after all, we're talking about glorification tonight. So, so what is Glory. And, and what, you know, how does that work between the Father and the Son? Well, you know, I've been puzzling over this question, what is glory, basically all week. Um, I, I've, I've, I've read books and dictionaries and, and articles, and I've, just been, I've been trying to figure out, like, what, what, how, what is glory? And as best I can tell, glory is the splendor of God. It's the radiance, it's the beauty, it's the luminosity, it's the impressiveness of who God is. You know, this is why when you see an impressive sunset, what do you say? You say, it's glorious. You know, or if you see a person who's a star athlete, what do you say about them? You say that they've won fame and glory. So, so, so glory, you know, glory is, is it's, it's the godness of God. It's, it's, it's impressiveness. It's, it's, you know, it's glory. I'm not quite sure how else to say it. And when you chase that little word glory through the gospel of John, it's a little glimpse of just what is going on inside the very heart of the Trinity. Let me read you a few more verses. Look at John 8, verse 50. This is Jesus talking, and he says, I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Now, the judge, this is a reference to God the Father. So what this verse is telling us is that the Son does not seek his own glory, but the Father is seeking the glory of the Son. 
Okay, so let me go now to John 12. This is John 12, 27 through 28. And now th this is said in the context of, of Jesus preparing to enter into his sufferings on the cross. He says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. In other words, the Father gives his glory to the Son, and the Son gives that glory right back to the Father, which, by the way, all takes place in and through the Spirit, which we don't have time to get into tonight, but the Spirit's involved as well. But the point here is, is, is at the very heart of who God is, is self-giving. The very heart of the Trinity is an infinite feedback loop of self-giving, self-emptying love. It's the Father seeking the Son's glory. It's the Son seeking the Father's glory. Then it's the Father seeking the Son's glory again. Then it's the Son seeking the Father's glory. It's an infinite feedback loop that just goes on and on and on forever and ever and ever. And this, by the way, is the definition of what love is. Love is never self-seeking. It's always seeking the good of the other person. This is what is happening inside the Trinity. And this means that when Jesus went to the cross and when he laid down his life and poured himself out for us, not just for our sakes, but for the sake of the glory of the Father to carry out his plan that he, he had ordained for, the, for him to do, what was happening on the cross was the very thing that had always been happening inside the Trinity from all eternity. And the cross just finally put it on display for all to see. Don't you see that this means that the gospel is a love story between Father, Son, and Spirit. Nothing exists before or after that love. Why did God create the universe? You know, was it because God was just lonely? You know, he just like needed someone to talk to? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, of course not, because from all eternity, the Son was basking in the love and in the glory of the Father communicated by the Spirit. And the Father was delighting in the Spirit-sent love of the Son. It was not that God was lonely. The only explanation for why God created the universe was because of love. The God created the universe as a love gift for the Son. You know, it says in Colossians chapter 1 that all things were created by, uh, through him and for him. Because God is love, because it's the Father loving the Son through the Spirit, that love leads to the creation. It, it, his love is, is it's like, it, it is like a fountain. It's a spreading love that's just, that inherently is so great and so glorious that as the Father loves the Son, as the Son loves the Father, it spills over like a fountain gushing out liquid love. And the result is creation. That The same author I read a little earlier, a guy named Michael Reeves, uh, let me read you another little quote. He says, God is a sharing God, a God who loves to include. Indeed, that is why God goes on to create. His love is not for keeping, but for spreading. In other words, the creation is the overflow of the love of God. Well, what about salvation? Why did God save humanity? You know, was it so that he could, you know, get a bunch of slaves just to worship him? No, it was so that he could present a bride for his beloved son. Salvation is an overflow of the love of God. And all of this flows from the fact that God is Trinity. You know, in paganism, God is power. In Islam, God is authority. In Christianity... God has power, and God has authority, but God is love. God is love. That is who the triune God is. Does that make sense? See how, see, see how all these things go together. And then, so, 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 okay, second point, the triune love, which you might think we've already talked about. What I, what I, what I mean by this is, is I, I now want to look at John 17. And, and what I want to show you is how the love you see inside the Trinity has been made to overflow and to reach out to those outside the Trinity, which is us. And, and, and um, 
You, know, you see that just at the very beginning of, of the, the passage on the handout. In, you know, verses 20 through 26 uh, pertain to us as believers because in the first part of Jesus' prayer, you see he's praying for himself. That's verses 1 through 5. Uh, the next part, verses 6 through 19, you see he's praying for his disciples. But when you come to verse 20, he changes his focus. You know, what does he say? He says, my prayer is not for them, referring to the disciples. It's not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So what that means is that he's now speaking about those who would one day hear the message of the gospel the disciples preached, and that would therefore include every single believer in Jesus. That would include you and me. And so, congratulations, if you're here tonight, you can proudly say, maybe not proudly say, you can truly say that Jesus prayed for you. For you. You specifically. Now, what did he pray for you? Um, what I want to do is I want to just, just go through this passage verse by verse to answer that question. Uh, look at verse 21. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So that's a prayer for unity. It's a unity of all Jesus' followers. It is a unity so tight that it's just as tight as the unity between the Father and and the Son. You know, when people see you, when they see the way that you love other believers, do they see an image of the Father, Son, and Spirit? So there's a unity between believers, but it's actually uh, something even more that Jesus prays that's even more profound. Verse 21 continues. It says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What he's praying for here is that believers, the church, would be perfectly united to Father and Son. Um, you know, when I was in college, I, um, there was a friend I had who was one of 14 siblings. There were four that were biological, and then the rest of the 10 were internationally adopted. Um, and every now and then on breaks, um, some of my college friends and I, we would go um, wind up st spending a few days with this friend and, and with her family. And I just loved it. Um, I... I just loved it because it was, it was so fun just to like show up at this house and get like mobbed by all the kids who just, you know, they just wanted to play with you. Uh, and I loved watching the amazing way that my friend's mom just, you know, you'd think with 14 kids, how would you do it all? But she was the most peaceful woman that you can imagine. She just was, she so gently, so peacefully, so non-anxiously would feed and care and clothe for all of her children that she had welcomed into her home. And I loved watching the way that my friend's dad loved her mom, how they tenderly loved and supported each other. I loved watching the way that the siblings would just goof off and just laugh. There was laughter in that house. And in fact, just, you know, a little sidebar, long after I lost touch with this particular friend, I actually, like, a couple years ago, I just went up and, like, stayed with the rest of the family, even though, like, my friend had, like, moved away and gotten married and wasn't even there anymore. I just, like, you know, hung out with the rest of the kids, and it was awesome. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you why that was so meaningful to me. You know, why, why, I guess you could say that my mind, you know, kind of still kind of wanders longingly back to my memories of my time in that home. The reason, the reason is that there was love. There was love in that house. You know, it's kind of like, I, I think of like those Thomas Kincaid paintings. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like kind of the, um, you know, like the, 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 the cottage down the little, you know, dirt country road. And like it's kind of twilight and there's like smoke coming out of the chimney and all the lights are on inside. It's all warm and cozy. You just want to like take a snuggie and just, you know. That's, that's what it's like looking at a Thomas Kincaid painting. And, and you might even want to jump into the painting. You might want to like get inside the house in the painting. And, and the reason why is that there's love in there. You know, there's light in there. There's warmth in there. There's safety in there. There's security in there. That's what makes a house a home. Well, in John 14, did you know that Jesus says that he will come, the Father will come, and he, and he will make our home with us. The Trinity is the ultimate home. There's love in there. There's love in there. When we really long for love, when you long for beauty or long for, for anything, really, do you know what you're really longing for? What you're searching for is the love relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, if the Father and the Son are two palm trees, their love for each other by the Spirit is kind of like a hammock in between the two trees. It's like a place where you can go and curl up and find rest. Find rest. That's our home. 
That's our home, and that's what Jesus prays that we would have in verse 21, to be brought into unity with the Father and the Son. And it's even more than that. Verses 22 and 23. Uh, he says here, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's not just that Jesus reveals that we will be brought into the intimate love between the Father and the Son. What he's praying for here is that, that we would experience ourselves as the object of the intimate love of the Father and the Son. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Those one, two, three, four, five, six words, the last six words of verse 23 are right up there as the most profound words in the entire Bible. I mean, if you read that and your heart doesn't kind of explode a little bit, then like, just keep reading it. <laughs> just keep reading it. You are loved as much as the Father loves the Son. How much does the Father love the Son? You know, like, we just said that creation was a love gift to the, to, to the Son. Um, you know, so, I don't know how you quantify this, but, like, just somehow in your mind or in your heart tonight, like, I want you just to think of every single beautiful thing in creation you can possibly think of. You know, every, like, mountaintop and ocean and waterfall and, and desert and whatever. Like, if you could ha if, if there were a way to, like, quantify that in terms of love, like, hopefully that gives you just a tiny taste of the amount of love the Father has for the Son. Or salvation. We also said that is, is an act of the Father's love for the Son. Um, I mean, do you, do you realize what Jesus paid in order to secure our salvation? I mean, it wasn't just a quantifiable cost. It was an infinite, unquantifiable cost. Every waterfall and every whip mark is an articulation of the love of the Father for the Son. And, and you can't quantify that. It, it is truly infinite, but that is the scale. That is the scope of the love of the Father for the Son. And that is the love with which God loves us. It's amazing. It's amazing. The last three verses. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known <clears throat> in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This verse begins with Jesus saying, I want. Um, you remember what I said about this passage? It precedes the cross. It's, it reveals the reason why Jesus went to the cross. You know, what did he want out of that? What was his purpose in laying down his life for us? Here's the answer. Here's the answer. He wanted the things listed in these verses. He wanted his love to be in us. He wanted him to be in us. He wanted us to be with him where he is. And he wanted us to see his glory. Now, it's hard even to imagine how breathtaking all of this stuff is. And, you know, Moses was someone who asked to see the glory of God. In Exodus 13, or not 33, 33. And there God tells him that he would be able to see some of God's glory, but it was only the glory passing by. You know, God says, I'll, I'll put you behind this rock, and I'll cover the rock with my hand. Um, and all you're going to be able to see is God's back. You're not going to be able to see his face, just God as he's kind of, you'll see the back part of God as he's passing by. Whatever that means. <laughs> but what it, you know, very least means is that Moses didn't really get anything more than just a glimpse of God's glory. What Jesus prays here is that we would get not just a glimpse of it, but that we would gaze at it. And not just to see God's back, but to see God's face. What would that be like? What would it be to gaze at God's glory in its fullness? Look at what the text says. This glory, it says, is the glory that the Father has given the Son because, Jesus says, you loved me 
before the creation of the world. And that, you know, remember, that love is the same love with which the Father loves us. So don't you see what this, this means? It means that to see the fullness of Jesus' glory will be finally to see all in one place how much the Father loves the Son. It'll be a visual representation of the fullness of that love. And that will be wonder beyond all wonders to see how much the Father loves us. That's what it'll be to see Jesus' glory. And that's what lies ahead of us. That's what glorification holds. Um, Jonathan Edwards, who's been called America's greatest theologian, um, he once preached a famous little sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. Heaven is a world of love. And in this sermon, what he attempts to do, <laughs> as best he could, is to really just describe all the things that John 17 is talking about, uh, to describe what the fullness of God's love in heaven will be like. And here's what he said. He said, as the saints will love God with an inconceivable ardency of heart and to the utmost of their capacity, so they will know that he has loved them from all eternity and still loves them. And they shall know that all that happiness and glory which they are possessed of are the fruits of his love. And with the same ardor and fervency will the saints love the Lord Jesus Christ, and their love will be accepted. And they shall know that he has loved them with a faithful, yea, even with a dying love. That is the depth of the love of God. And that is what lies ahead of us. And that just, one last thing I want to say before we conclude. Just the triune invitation. Don't you see that through all of what we looked at, John 17, God is inviting you into a love that you've been looking for all your life, whether you know it or not. It's a love that's never ending, it's never shrinking, it's never failing, and it's ever increasing. And through what Jesus did on the cross, God wants that love for every single person in this room. If you have never invited God to be, if you've never invited Jesus to be the Savior and Lord of your life in order to receive what this chapter is talking about, can I urge you to do it tonight? Can I urge you to repent of your sins and just to throw away anything else that you have been living for that is not this, because there is nothing that you will ever, ever, ever find that is better than this. And let me ask you if that really is something that is true of you. If you, if, if you have said yes to Jesus and you've gotten the first taste of the love that this chapter is talking about, and if you knew that the fullness of that love was in your future, how would it change you? How would it affect your identity? Uh, 1952, there's a woman named Florence Chadwick. She's a, a famous swimmer. And, and she uh, had the goal of s swimming. It was something like a 20-some mile distance. Or no, 15, 16 miles, I think it was. Um, some, some big distance between Catalina Island and Cata uh, California, the little island off the coast of California. And, whoa, might have even been, I think, yeah, no, sorry, I think it was more than 15 miles. It was a long, long distance, that's the point. And she, she sets out to do it, and she swims for like a 15-hour span. And as she's you know, kind of approaching the end of the 15 hours, she can feel her strength giving out. And now her, her, her I guess, kind of her, her helpers, including her, her own mother, actually, they're in a, a chase boat kind of near her, so that way they can just be there for safety in case she drowns or you know, something happens. And she's telling the people in the boat that she's about to give up. She just can't go any further. Um, and her mother encourages her, just keep going. You're almost there. You're almost there. But because of, of the fact that it was a kind of a bad weather day, she, she couldn't actually really see what was ahead. And so she, she just thought, you know, I can't do it. I can't make it. So she gets out of the water um, and, and she doesn't finish the swim. Well, she finds out after she gets out of the water that the shore was only a half mile away. She could have made it. And the next day in a news conference, um, here's what she said. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. How, we, we, we really need to see the shore. <laughs> we really deeply need to see the shore and to know what lies ahead of us. If we really knew that, that would give you an invincible hope. I mean, look, I, I shared about the death of my dreams that I had at one point in my life. Everyone has dreams. And, you know, it's in your 20s where a lot of those dreams begin to die. 
sorry. If you haven't experienced that, you're probably going to experience it. It's going to suck. God's going to like embrace you with his love. You're going to get through it. It's going to be great. But yeah, you know, sometimes your dreams die and it's hard. Amen. Yeah, right? You wanted a certain job and you didn't get it. You wanted to be married by a certain age and you're single. You wanted to marry a particular person. You thought they were going to marry you and then they broke up with you and you were like, what happened? The death of dreams is always hard. But, but, if what awaits you is John 17, if what awaits you is glory, then what are you complaining about? I mean, sorry, but you can complain if you want to. But, but look, your life, your life, you have no idea. You, you have no idea the fullness of the joy that awaits you. And if you, if you knew that there was joy just around the corner, you wouldn't think of your life as a perpetual cycle of hardship. You'd be able to get through it. You'd be able to go the extra half mile. So when bad things happen, it might hurt you, but it's not going to crush you. When a person that you're dating breaks up with you, you know, it might really wound you, but you're not going to despair because there's an invincibility to your life. You're, you're going <laughs> to, you, you know it's ahead. You have a hope that will get you through it. And because Jesus died for you, that hope is for every single person in this room. Would you take it? Would you receive it? Let me pray. Jesus, I just, I remember one time I was meeting with this guy and he was trying to convince me to be a missionary. He had been a missionary. He leaned across the table for me and he just said, God is awesome. And I, want, I long for you to know that in the way that I know it. Father, would you just show us how awesome you are? Father, we want to know it like John 17 knows it. God, show yourself to us. Amen.